Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys again. Uh, as Pastor Dean said, my name is Josh Jacobson, and if we haven't met, uh, my connection here is that uh, Dean has been mentoring me through my time at seminary, and we've been meeting together for quite a few years now, and uh, it's just been wonderful, and it's been great uh, to also become a friend of grace proper, the whole church, and get to know some of you as well, and to be able to speak. So, I'm excited. The last couple of times I've been here, I've shared a little bit about my immediate family. And so I wanted to change things up this week and tell you a story about my extended family. And this story comes back uh, a number of years now when my cousin was maybe around five years old, about ready to head into kindergarten. And he and his dad were enjoying a wonderful late summer, early fall day when it was still warm and they're running all around the backyard, playing with squirt guns, trying to douse each other with as much water as possible, jumping out from behind trees, coming around the side of the house, and generally just having a blast. That is, until my cousin came around the corner of the house, right as his dad was coming up around the house, and his super soaker, the butt of his super soaker, clocked my cousin right across the side of the eye. Uh, He wasn't seriously hurt, but he did have to go to school the next day with a pretty good shiner. And as you can imagine, a kindergartner coming into his class at the beginning of the year with a good shiner on his face caused a few questions. So the teacher asked, hey, what happened to your eye? And my cousin, being as innocent as possible, told her the truth. My daddy hit me with his gun. It was at that point that my aunt had to have a very unwelcome conversation. (laughs) Thankfully, she had nothing to hide, and it all cleared up very quickly. But today, we're going to talk about another unwelcome conversation. And maybe this time, the woman in question actually had something to hide. Maybe she desperately wanted to hide it and didn't want to have this conversation at all. I think for her, it was a very unwelcome, very uncomfortable conversation. And I think at the end, it may very well be that for us as well. So take a minute, adjust yourself in your seats, get as comfortable as you can, take one last confident glance at your neighbor before you don't really want to look at them again, (laughs) and let's have an uncomfortable conversation. So we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles today or a Bible app, I encourage you to find your way to John chapter 4, and we're going to see what we can do to immerse ourselves in this conversation. Try to put ourselves in this moment as though Jesus were speaking directly with us. And so you're welcome to follow along in your Bibles or in your Bible app. You can follow along with the NIV text that's going to be behind me. Or you could even just close your eyes and try to imagine being in this scene. So we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 4, starting in verse 5, when Jesus is on a long journey by foot to get to Galilee. It starts this way. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and the one who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have given it to him, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? And as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, But you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar... The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Will you pray with me? God, we know that you are longing to speak with each one of us. So God, let us hear. Let us enter this conversation. Let us be ready to hear what you want to say directly to our hearts. Please meet us here. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we're going to enter into this story, we have a lot of work to do because we have a lot of hurdles to overcome. In fact, we have 2,000 years worth of history to rewind. We have to travel halfway around the globe We have to enter a completely different cultural context with a different language, different set of customs, a different set of norms, and different way of perceiving the world. We have to enter all of this before we can truly enter the story. That's a lot of work. So let's start with the easy part. The easy part is this took place in the desert. It's hot, it's dusty, it's barren. And it's new, it it's, takes place under the noonday sun. The searing heat of the day is upon them. And Jesus sits down at the well 
and he's thirsty, and he has nothing to draw water with. His disciples all head into town, and there he sits. And it's no wonder the very first person he sees coming to the well, he says, please give me a drink. It's a drink he never gets, by the way. (laughs) But the setting itself is rather unique. And John's audience, the, the people to whom John was writing his gospel, would have seen a story that takes place at a well in a very unique light. In fact, they would have expected a very, very normal story line to unfold. They've seen this movie before. A single man shows up at a well. Somebody else arrives there. They exchange some water. Somebody mentions something about marriage. She runs into town, gets her whole family. Wedding bells start to ring and everybody lives happily ever after. That's the story they were familiar with. In fact, that's how Isaac met his wife, Rebecca. That is how their son, Jacob, the same Jacob as Jacob's well here, Jacob met his wife, and then later even Moses met his wife at a well. These are the stories that played out time and time again. And so when you see a single man at a well, and here walks a woman to that well, all of a sudden his audience is expecting something to happen. But something about the story is all wrong. In the story of Isaac and the story of Jacob, the text makes pains to tell us they went to their own people to find a wife. Jesus isn't among his own people at all. He's in Samaria. This is the last place any self-respecting Jew would go to look for a wife. It's certainly the last place a rabbi would go. And so here he is, sitting at a well in the middle of the desert under the searing heat of the noonday sun, and all of John's readers are asking, what is happening right now? But then there's more layers to this amazing, masterful story that John has given us here. Because the woman herself is full of intrigue. You see, she chose to come to the well at noon, despite the searing heat. She comes at noon by herself. Now, gathering water was women's work. And it was possibly seen as drudgery from time to time. But for most women, it was also a time to connect with other women. But they didn't do it in the middle of the day. They did it either early in the morning or in the late evening when they could beat the heat. And they would always come together. This woman does neither of those things. She doesn't come with anybody else. And she comes in the middle of the noonday sun. Why? What has she got to hide? What is her story? What's happening here? John's audience, the people who read this gospel for the very first time, are a little uncomfortable at this moment. What is happening in Jesus' story, and why is he there? But there's one more layer. In this cultural time and space, men did not sit and have a conversation one-on-one with a woman who was not their wife. That was seen as taboo. And it wasn't just taboo in Jewish circles. It was taboo in Samaritan circles as well. 
Samaritans are kind of like the Jewish cousins that nobody ever talks about. The Samaritans were from that side of the family, the side of the family that just doesn't have a great reputation. They might come from the same ancestry, same line of Isaac and Jacob, but long ago they intermarried with other peoples and they kind of changed the Jewish religion into something less than the Jewish religion. And so they were blasphemous, they were defiled, they weren't welcome at Thanksgiving. So Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman by himself. This just wasn't done. It was seen as highly inappropriate, both in Jewish and in Samaritan circles. You just couldn't prove that the conversation itself was innocent because there was no other witnesses. There were no other people to see what happened. So we might, with John's very first audience, ask, what is Jesus up to here? Why has he put himself in a situation that doesn't look very Christian for Christ to be doing? What's happening here? So even if we overcome all of these barriers and start seeing it through the lens of these first century readers, there's a few things that we still cannot overcome. There's a few barriers that still remain. One of them is we won't know what was in this woman's mind. We just won't. And in fact, we don't even know most of her story. We only know what John tells us, which is just a little bit. But according to John, that's all we need to know. But the other thing that is still a barrier for us is the text itself. And I say that because it's, well, text. I think we've all experienced this at some point. Maybe you have sent a text message to your spouse and said, hey, would you like to have Chinese tonight? And you get a text reply that says, sure. What does that mean? Is that, sure, I'd love to, super excited, great idea? Is that, eh, sure, it's not my favorite, but I'll tolerate it. Or, Sure, if I have to. Or what in the world does sure mean? That's exactly what's happening on almost every line of this text. Where's the tone of voice? Where's the look on the face? Where is the context around this? We don't get any of that. We have black and white text. So today, I want to go through this story and I want to suggest what may be a plausible dynamic playing out here. I don't know if it's true, but based on what we know about the first century time and place, this might be a little bit of how it played out. So it starts with Jesus striking up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. I can just picture her coming to do her chores in the searing heat of the noonday sun saying, I just want to get this over with. I don't want to stand here a minute longer than I, want, than I have to. I came alone so that I didn't have to talk to anybody. And I just want to get this done. And the last thing I want to do is have a conversation with a Jewish man who I know is going to look down on me. Because that's what Jews did to Samaritans. And so she shows up. I, I've been in this situation. Maybe you have too. Where you just want to get the job done. You don't want to sit and talk. And you certainly don't want to talk to somebody who's going to judge you. 
I just want to get this chore over with. But Jesus strikes up a conversation anyway. Will you give me a drink? He says in verse 7. I can just imagine her shock. She lives in this cultural time and space. All of the stories of Jacob's well and, and Rebecca and uh, like all of these stories are her stories too. She knows the cultural taboos of a man striking up a private conversation with a woman. She knows all the dynamics between the Samaritans and the Jews. All of that she gets intuitively. So she looks at him and says, what? <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're talking to me. You want me a defiled Samaritan woman to draw water out so that you can drink. Isn't that going to make you unclean or something? I thought that's why you guys don't have any conversation with us. You don't interact with the Samaritans. So verse 9, she does. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? So this is Jesus' reply in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What? I mean, no, really, what? Living? I don't think this made a lick of sense to her. I just, we we know this story. Many of us have heard this story. We get to read this story 2,000 years later in a climate-controlled room in semi-comfortable seats, listening to this story. We know, those of us who follow Jesus, we know what living water is. We get it. This must have come out of left field for her. She must have looked at this Jewish man who wasn't making a lot of sense. It's hot outside. I just want to get the water. So what does she say in reply? Verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? In my imagination, this is her attempt to just shut down the conversation. I don't have time for riddles or games. How are you going to get living water? If you hadn't noticed, we're in the middle of the desert. There is no such thing as living water. The only way to get water is 100 feet down in this well. And by the way, does that make you better than Jacob? Jacob is the one that discovered this well. And generation after generation after generation ever since have been getting their water from this source. You got a lot of nerve to think you can do better. Where is this living water going to come from? I think she wants to just end it right there. But Jesus doubles down. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water again will be thirsty, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I don't don't know that she expected him to double down. I wonder if she's intrigued at this point. He's very convinced he's got this water. So what does she say? Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This is one of those times 
I wish we had tone of voice to help us. What look was on her face? What tone of voice did she say this with? Was she, did she believe? Did, did it just change like that? And she, great, give me the living water. I'm ready. Just give it to me. I don't want to come back here in the middle of the heat. So bring me the living water. Was she convinced? Or was she testing him? All right, you say, you say you've got it. Show me. Or is it maybe somewhere in between? I kind of think it's maybe in between. Maybe she's like, hey, it's worth a shot. If I never have to come haul water in the middle of the day again, I'll take a shot on that. Go ahead, give me some living water. And I think it's at this point that all Jesus had to do was perform a little miracle. Show her another source of water. Spring it up out of whatever he chose to. Maybe even take some time to explain the spiritual intent of what he's trying to say as well. Maybe he could have had a full-fledged convert right there on the spot. All he had to do was give her the living water. But instead, Jesus changes the subject. He goes a completely different direction. All he had to do was just give her the living water. Spiritual, physical, didn't matter at this point. Just produce it. And she would have, she would have believed. So what does he say? Verse 16, he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I got to admit, I don't get this. Why? He had her right where, she, where he wanted her, seemingly, right? He introduced this whole topic about water. Give me a drink. I'll give you a better one. You know, he was ready. She was ready. Why change the subject? And particularly, why ask her to do something he knows she can't do? If he knows all of this about her past, that she's had five husbands and she's living with somebody that's not her husband, he knows all of that. Why bring it up? I mean, I might not be invited back here, but I feel like Jesus is almost being mean. Why would you bring this up? I want to read you something that I think holds the answer. When I was looking at which seminary I wanted to go to, a friend of mine had graduated from Denver Seminary, and he thoroughly enjoyed his time there. And he said, I, I think you should check it out. I think you should check it out. Uh, they even have a fully online program. So you don't even have to move to Denver. You can do it all online. Just go check them out. And if you don't go there, that's fine. But look at it. So I did. And I was looking over their website. And I looked through their core commitments. These are the things that they really, really believe strongly. Their core commitments. One of their core commitments was redemptive relationships. And it said this on their website. They believe in relationships that drag us out of our hiding places into the light of Christ's searing gaze of love. I want to read that one more time because I just love it. Relationships that drag us out of our hiding places into the light of Christ's searing gaze of love. That sentence convinced me to go to Denver Seminary. 
I wanted to be trained by people who held that as their core value. And I think something of that is going on with Jesus here. He could have produced a miracle. He could have explained the spiritual significance of living water. He could have done all those things. And he probably would have gotten her to believe. But until she had been drugged out of her hiding places, into Christ's searing gaze of love, he wouldn't have had her soul. The depths of who she is, the depths of where she's come from, he wanted all of her. And that means she had to come out of hiding and into the light of his searing gaze of love. But that's uncomfortable. That leaves us feeling almost like we have no skin. And we just wince at everything. We just feel so exposed. And so she did what we would all do. She changed the subject. Verse 19, she says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Oh, the good old theological debate. There's no faster way to get out of a feeling of being exposed than to just bring up a theological debate. Don't like what the pastor had to say? Don't like the way that certain things are going for you? Well, all you have to do is bring up one of those theological debates. You can throw everything else out the window because we disagree over this one thing. That is human nature. And here she goes. Just let's throw up the theological debate so I don't have to feel so exposed, so vulnerable in this moment. I want to gain the upper ground and I want to tell you this is how we disagree. We're, we're, this can't possibly be for me. We don't align. So it's fascinating to me that Jesus both, both throws out her argument on one level and engages with it on another level. So I want to look at what Jesus has to say in reply. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. So on the one hand, he said, look, we're not even going to have this debate anymore about whether or not you got to worship on Mount Gerizim or worship in Jerusalem. That same old tired debate that's been going on between Samaritans and Jews for generations after generations doesn't matter anymore because Jesus came and he changed all of that. Worship is now going to be by spirit and by truth. All of this is going to change. But on the other hand, We have to get Jesus right. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus makes it a point to say, no, there's still one thing about this debate we still have to get right. Salvation is going to come through a Jewish Messiah. At the end of the day, no debate matters as much as getting Jesus right. And that's why John wrote this gospel 
And that's why this sermon series is happening, so that we can get Jesus right. In fact, I mean, look at John 20, 31, a verse I'm sure you've seen, but these are written. John wrote his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the point. So in any theological debate, you still have to get one thing right. Who is Jesus? So he continues in verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So he says, yeah, worship is no longer going to be tied to a place. It's not Mount Gerizim. It's not Jerusalem. It is by the spirit. It is spirit-enabled worship. But I love this moment because this moment, we finally find out this isn't a betrothal story. Jesus isn't coming here looking for a wife. He is coming looking for true worshipers, which on the one hand, I'm sure his audience would have felt a little bit better, but the same thing is still true. He's still in Samaria. This is the last place Jesus should be looking for true worshipers. And this is the last person we would have ever expected him to be talking to about what true worship looks like. But Jesus tells her, nonetheless, true worship is in spirit and in truth. So it has to be guided by the Holy Spirit. It's not tied to a particular place. Bible scholar Gary Burge says it this way, this is not about a holy place. It's about a holy person and worship of him that is guided by a holy spirit. So worship must be in spirit. But worship must also be in truth. And we looked at one side of that coin a moment ago, and that is we have to get Jesus right. We have to truly worship the real Messiah, Jesus. But there's another side to the truth coin. We have to truly bring ourselves to worship. And that's why she had to come out of her hiding place into the light of Christ's searing gaze of love. True worship is a response of bringing all of ourself to the true Messiah and being received by his love. That is where true worship comes from. So this woman recognizes that what Jesus has to say and the mysteries that he's expounding on, these are Messiah-type mysteries. So she, she dives right in. Verse 25, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. What a mic drop moment. He just comes right out and tells her, I'm it. I'm the Messiah. This is amazing to me. He didn't even reveal himself with this level of clarity to Nicodemus. I know you guys talked about Nicodemus last week, and I don't think it's an accident at all that Nicodemus' story in John 3 comes right before the woman at the well story in John 4. I think we're meant to see these characters side by side. So on the one hand, Nicodemus 
had a name. This woman is not named. On the one hand, Nicodemus had a reputation to protect. This woman had a reputation to avoid. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and this woman comes to Jesus in the broad daylight. Nicodemus was a well-respected teacher of Israel who just didn't seem to understand. She was neither respected nor a teacher of her people, and yet she goes and evangelizes her entire town. Jesus reveals himself to her in a way he never did to one of the most respected leaders of his people. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. No riddles, no guessing games, no problems to solve, no language that can only be understood by those who believe. Plain and simple, I am the Messiah. And as if to underscore this mic drop moment, nothing more is said. The conversation is over. No more words are spoken. It's just time for action. Look at verse 27. The disciples show up right at this moment. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? In my imagination, the disciples are a good 10 or 15 feet back. They've walked up on this scene and they stopped dead in their tracks. Their jaws are open and they kind of look at each other like, what did we just walk into? What, what's happening right now? But they didn't ask. They didn't say anything. They just stand there a little dumbfounded. And now it's time for the woman to act. Look at verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I want to point out just a couple of things here. First, she dropped her water jug. She doesn't need to draw water anymore. The living water has arrived. It's welled up within her on toward eternal life, just like Jesus said it would. She doesn't need this jug anymore. Just like Jesus never got the drink he asked for, she never got that physical water either. She got a well of living water instead. But the other thing I want to point out here is, what was her evangelistic message? This is a bizarre message to me. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. How is that good news? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if somebody came and said, hey, this guy will tell you anything you ever done. <laughs> I'm staying home. <laughs> but for her, it was good news. But this isn't, this isn't the way we tend to share the gospel. We have it packaged in a very nice, neat... You know what? It's as even as easy as ABC. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus Christ and confess that he is your Lord and you will be saved. ABC. This woman didn't do that. Instead, she reminds us of the power of that very first step. Admit that you're a sinner. When we come out of our hiding places and we feel all exposed, but we receive the loving gaze of Jesus, that is where salvation comes from. And that's what she keys in on. 
the story that she once hid from, the story that she once ran from, this is the story that she's proclaiming in the streets. Come see a man who told me this whole story. He knows everything about me. And he looked on me with love. Could this be the Messiah? Now, I'm sure none of us will ever know what it really means to be a first century Samaritan woman with a reputation that she'd rather avoid. But I think we all know what it means to hide. What if Jesus were having this conversation with us? And maybe now it starts to get a little uncomfortable. What if Jesus didn't say, go and get your husband and come back? What if he said, go and get your internet browsing history and come back? Go and get your bank statement and come back. Go and bring me the contents of your liquor cabinet or your Netflix history or your Google Maps timeline. Go get these things and come back. But this assumes some level of guilt on behalf of the woman, which may or may not be true. A lot of scholars have said this woman may be perfectly innocent. In that time and space, the only way you could get a divorce was if the man requested a divorce. And he didn't need a whole lot of reason to do it. In fact, a man could divorce his, woman, his wife for something as trivial as infertility. And so it could be that she bears no blame whatsoever that she has been the victim of a patriarchal society. She's been married five different times by five unreputable men, and now she's completely unmarriable. And the best she can do is live with another man without the benefit of wedlock because that's the best and safest way she can provide for herself. It could be. So maybe you know what it's like to hide for no fault of your own. Maybe you have been similarly treated and you bear the shame that has nothing to do with anything you've ever done. And yet, Jesus is calling, come out of your hiding place. Step into the light of the searing gaze of Christ's love. For most of us, I suspect that both are true. Because our most shameful sins are almost always connected to our deepest place of woundedness. These things live uncomfortably hand in hand in our lives. So if you're there, step out of your hiding place. Come into the light of Christ's searing gaze of love. It won't just change your life. It will change the lives of everybody who hears you shouting through the streets. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Let's pray. God, thank you that you strike up a conversation with us even when we're unwilling and even when the conversation feels unwelcome. God, may we respond. We don't want to live in hiding. We want to live in the wonderful light of your gaze of love. Thank you that you do gaze on us with love no matter where we came from. May we step in and receive your light. May you become our Messiah. In Jesus' name.
Amen.